Hey everyone, this is Jeffrey Wu with the Healthier Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And I'm super excited to bring on fellow, I would say what, podcaster, educator, but a proper medical doctor and cardiologist, Dr. Brett Scher. Great to have you in the program. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Yeah. And I know you run a really, you know, I think one of the top tier podcasts in this space, Diet Doctor, been speaking and educating folks about the ketogenic low carbohydrate lifestyle. I think what's especially interesting is that you're a cardiologist by background and the cardiologists always have the most, I would say, skepticism with a ketogenic approach because the increased consumption of fat as one way to induce ketosis oftentimes is very scary for cardiologists. So maybe as a way to introduce yourself, love to hear your background and how did you break out of the cardiology herd and, and go uh, this, this current path? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, especially now as we see the growth of physicians using low carbon keto lifestyles, it seems like, you know, in the primary care sphere, it's really growing, but in cardiology, it's you probably count us still on one hand. It's not really growing at all. And and for me, I was pretty fortunate to, the way I ended up. So I, I trained in a, in a general and preventive cardiology fellowship. So I was really focusing on prevention. But of course, it was an Ornish style program because um, that's what preventive cardiology is you know classically thought of. So when I finished my training, went out into the real world and started my practice, I was you know expecting to have this amazing impact on all my patients. And now that I had this extra training and prevention, that's all I needed to stamp out cardiovascular disease and help everybody. And I don't know if I was naive or what, but the reality set in pretty quickly that that was not happening and that was not the impact I was having. So, you know, I had to scratch my head and say, okay, well, why is this happening? Why, why aren't people complying with the lifestyle? Or even if they are complying with the lifestyle, why aren't we seeing the changes I want to see in the benefits? Why am I just ramping up medications? And why are people, you know, come, still coming in the hospital? And it was frustrating. So I, I started Boundless Health, which was a, it's like a small boutique wellness center that I did in addition to my cardiology practice. And I was just lucky enough to work with a good friend of mine who is an amazing health coach but also was very knowledgeable in ketosis and ketogenic diets. And so I didn't start it, you know, to go into ketogenic diets. I just started it because it was a great health coach. And then on a couple of our trickier patients, he said, hey, why don't we try a ketogenic diet on this guy? And, you know, of course, with my training, everything I've been taught, my first reaction is, what are you crazy? You know, I'm a cardiologist. I can't do that. I can't kill this guy by giving him a ketogenic diet. And, and luckily, he said, well, have you looked into it? And I had to scratch my head and say, you know what? I actually haven't. I'm just going off of what other people have told me. I've never actually, you know, dove into it to, to see it for myself. And once I did that and saw the studies by, you know, Jeff Volek and saw, saw the studies by Eric Westman and Will Yancey, studies that had existed for, for years on low carbon keto diets in the medical literature, I was floored. I mean, I was just amazed. Like, how could I not have heard about this when it existed in the medical literature? So then as I started to learn about it, I tried it on myself, tried it on a couple patients. And then, you know, as so many people say, once you see the results, you can't unsee them because the results, unlike anything else we've gotten by saying, you know, reduce your calories, reduce your fat, exercise more. It's the, the results are sort of effortless from a patient perspective and rapid and sustainable. And I was like, wow, all right, this is a whole new era. Um, and so that got me going to really be an advocate for low carb and keto lifestyles. And 
look, they may not be right for everybody. You know, we got into trouble by saying low fat is right for everybody. And it's clearly not one thing for everybody. But because it's so kind of swept under the rug in, in contemporary medicine, I, that's why we need such strong voices to show the benefits so people can learn. And that's why we have like a, you know, a free three, three hour CME course at Diet Doctor. So physicians and clinicians can take an accredited continuing education course to learn about it because we got to get the word out there because it's such a powerful way to help people with their metabolic health and lose weight and improve their cardiovascular risk factors. So because of that experience, I was able, able to overcome this, you know, fear of fat, this concept that we have to eat low fat. And the other part, sorry to give a very long <laughs> answer to your first question, but the other part was it, it forced me to focus on quality of evidence. And that's something maybe we can talk about more during the interview, but that's not really emphasized enough. It's like evidence is evidence. Here's a study that shows something, therefore it must be. But when you look at the quality of the evidence, especially the quality of evidence surrounding the fear of fat or the con health concerns of fat, it is really poor poor quality evidence. And we shouldn't be making these strong recommendations based on that low quality of evidence. So that was the other thing that sort of, I really opened my mind to was understanding the quality of evidence and making our recommendations based upon that. 100%. And I think it's super powerful that one, you are open minded as a clinician, as a scientist to actually try something on yourself and try it on a very, very small controlled sample size. And you realize that what was a preconception essentially or a prejudice against a certain approach you're able to just see refuting data essentially i think it'd just be helpful just to frame up the conversation a little bit where what is kind of american cardiology association guidelines why for example do they have cheerios <laughs> and like the uh, and uh these like kind of breakfast foods as heart healthy what is the straw uh, the steel man argument for that perspective and uh, maybe just start there you know just yeah. coming from like cardiology 101 you just graduated from your fellowship or your residency what is the argument of the existing status quo of american cardiologists or cardiology association yeah so i mean you, you bring up a great example of the cheerios getting the heart healthy seal but not just cheerios even like Honey Nut Cheerios, you know, added sugar in Cheerios gets the, the heart healthy seal because it's low fat. And that's it. I mean, it's such a myopic view of anything low fat or anything with whole grains is automatically heart healthy. And it's just so simplistic and so off base. But that's the training, right? Anything that has a component that can show it lowers LDL to a tiny fraction of a degree is by definition heart healthy. And you know, then so that's the basic definition, but then when you really dig into it and you see where ACC, American Heart Association, you know, where they get a lot of their sponsorship money, it's from drug companies and it's from some food companies and cereal makers and things like that. And you know, that gets into the whole conspiracy theory <laughs> argument which I don't like to get into, but I mean, I think it's clear if, if you're getting money from someone, you're going to be more reluctant to develop guidelines that go against them, right? Whether you're bought or not, that's a different question, but it's going to make you more reluctant. So it's the concept of anything that affects LDL, is, that lowers LDL is beneficial. Anything that's low fat is beneficial. And then where's, where's your money coming from? So I, I think that's why we're sort of stuck in this low fat paradigm. And it just, 
it doesn't make sense because if you're following a surrogate marker, you got to make sure that that surrogate marker and a surrogate marker, meaning lowering LDL, right? It's not that your studies have measured in randomized trials, reduced heart attacks or reduced risk of dying by eating whole grains and eating low fat. Instead, they, they use a surrogate marker of LDL, but that's taking one piece of the pie when in reality, cardiovascular risk is your glucose, your insulin, your inflammation, the size and density of your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides, your blood pressure, your visceral fat, you know, all those things. But if all you focus on is LDL, you're just getting one piece of the picture where you don't know what's happening to everything else. And that's why I like to use the word myopic because I think it's it's so fitting. It's just so nearsighted and so hyper-focused and missing the bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're preaching to, our, I think, our audience here and, and, and to me where you think about the complexity of physiology of metabolism and it's not, nothing is a one leverage, one analyte solution, right? If you're just artificially compressing or elevating one marker, that is a cascade of different effects. And it's, it's so obvious. I mean, I think to me, it's so obvious that like, it's a whole family of biomarkers that one should consider. So I'd love to unpack this. So for whatever reason, whether conspiracy or a simpler model that just has not been refuted and completely turned over, LDL, which correlates to saturated fat consumption, is this demonized biomarker. Every single cardiologist kind of defaults, it prescribes a statin essentially, which is a drug that lowers LDL. But I think to your point, there's so much nuance even in the LDL itself, right? The size and density. Uh, we had a great conversation with Dr. Paul Mason talking about oxidized LDL, the small, dense particle of LDL right. that is potentially the key negative component of LDL, which is very, very different from, you know, fat, fluffy, healthy LDL, which is just an energy transporter that is turned over really, really rapidly. So uh, I'd love to get your perspective on why is LDL as a category demonized and what is the latest perspective in your practice of that family of sweets, like let, let's unpack the different forms of LDL. Let's talk about oxidized LDL. Let's talk about some of the other biomarkers like, you know, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Yeah. So to get to that first part of your question, I mean, it's not that someone just dreamed up that LDL should be demonized and, and didn't have evidence to support it. There is decent evidence from observational studies that higher LDL is correlated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So that is a true statement for a general population. But then to go deeper, the question is, well, how correlated is it? And are there other specifics that we need to know about it? And are there specific populations that maybe this doesn't apply to? So that's, that, that's the step that frequently isn't taken. It's just the basic step that you, know, you see a graph that says as LDL goes up, cardiovascular disease goes up, end of question. LDL is dangerous. But exactly like you're saying, not all LDL is the same. And this is really important because if you have metabolic disease, if you have chronic inflammation, uh, if you have you know diabetes and high insulin, you're much more likely to have the LDL subtype that is smaller and more dense, which means it's going to be harder for your receptors to clear that LDL and get rid of the LDL. So the LDL is going to stick around in circulation longer. It's going to be more likely to get oxidized, inflamed, and stick into that vascular wall. So that type of LDL is much more concerning than the larger, less dense LDL. Because that type of LDL 
that's not modified, not oxidized, that's going to get cleared much better by the receptors and removed. So it's not going to stick around in circulation as long. So that's an important differentiation. So there are studies that show, you know, if you look at kind of the, probably the most famous statin trial called the 4S study, and that was looking at people with heart attacks who are given a statin and it reduced their risk of developing a second heart attack or even dying. The statin did do that to a small degree. But when you break it down and look at the people who had high HDL and low triglycerides suggesting metabolic health, they had no benefit. They had no statistical benefit, which is pretty interesting, but not something we hear a lot about. So it really suggests there are different versions of hyperlipidemia or different versions of high cholesterol that we need to think about a little more carefully. But the studies don't always look at it to that degree. And if you're in an office visit, you have 10 minutes, you have to follow the guidelines, it's much easier just to write your statin prescription than to sort of look into it a little more. And that's not necessarily the fault of the doctor. I think that's more the fault of sort of the, the whole medical structure. So what I prefer is to get advanced lipid profiles on my patients. So that's when you can see the, not just the LDL cholesterol, the total concentration, but you can see the number of particles, or you can see the ApoB, which is basically a surrogate for the number of particles. But they're much better markers of cardiovascular risk than just the traditional LDLC. So that's one take home I want people to, to know that we have better tests, whether it's a ApoB or an LDL particle number, those are much better than just a total LDL cholesterol. You also have to factor in what your triglycerides and HDL are because those are so vital for sort of representing your metabolic health and representing um, how potentially dangerous the LDL is. And then measuring systemic inflammation with a CRP, uh, you know, inflammation all over your body or specific lipid inflammation like a, what's called an LPPLA2 or an oxidized LDL. Those are tests that can measure more specific LDL inflammation. So all of those are important to say, okay, well, what is, what is truly your risk? Where do we put you on this um, risk continuum rather than just looking at just the LDL? And then, of course, the other risk factors, your blood pressure, your glucose, your insulin levels, um, markers of insulin sensitivity. In fact, there was a great study that just came out um, that I wrote a little blurb about in, uh, at, at Diet Doctor. It was an evaluation of the Women's Health Initiative study. And what they looked at was when you look at their markers when they sort of first enrolled, and then you looked at who ended up getting heart attacks, what were the most predictive markers? And LDL had a predictive component to it. It was like 1.6 was the hazard ratio. And then ApoB was even higher at like 1.8. I apologize. I should have reviewed it, but it was, it was around 1.8. But if you looked at type 2 diabetes, it was 10. And if you looked at a lab marker, for insulin resistance called the LPIR, it was six, not 1.6, but six. So these were orders of magnitude better predictors of cardiovascular risk than LDL. And they have more to do with your metabolic health than just your lipids. So, so that's, that's how I prefer to look at it. And I think most doctors should be looking at it as LDL is one piece of the puzzle and the other parts of the puzzle are probably even more prognostic than LDL itself. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think you articulated it very, very clearly. Why are your colleagues in cardiology not hearing this and be like, oh, huh, like I should be doing what exactly what Dr. Brett sure is talking about. I mean, what is the pushback? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, like to me, it's like, it's so obviously clear that the standard HDL, LDL, triglyceride blood panel is not 
like very useful for for any sort of diagnostics or prescription. Well, you know what's so interesting is in a number of the guidelines will also will will say you can get a standard lipid profile, but there's really no added benefit to getting the advanced lipid testing. And the guidelines will say that. And here's why. If you approach it from the perspective of do you need a statin or do you not need a statin? And that's all you're thinking of, then LDL is all you really need, right? But if instead you want to say, well, how does lifestyle impact your lipids? How is your lifestyle or your lifestyle changes impacting things? That's when the advanced lipid testing, inflammatory markers, that's when those are so much more important because those are going to change with lifestyle. They're not going to necessarily change with statins. Statins don't lower your small dense LDL. Uh, in fact, they may raise it. Same with like LP little a, you know, statins are considered the treatment for it, but they actually raise it, which makes no sense to me. So we, our medicine, you know, our medical community, our medical society is a very drug-based society and not a lifestyle-based society. So if all you want to do is plug somebody's information into a calculator to say, what is your risk? Do I put you on a statin? Then, then you don't need extra testing for that. But if you do want to dig deeper and say, okay, I'm not going to listen to the guidelines. I want to listen to you as a person. You know, the guidelines are applied to general population, but you're not a general population. You are a person. I want to individualize this. Then you want to get much more testing. But our medical society doesn't value that and doesn't promote that because it takes time and time is money. And those aren't things that that people really have a lot of right now as as doctors in in medical groups. So I, I wish more doctors had our perspective, you know, that that we want more information, that we want information that's influenced by lifestyle, that we want to look at the ramifications of metabolic health. Uh, those are those are so important, but they take time and there's not an easy drug for it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing when I talk to doctors like yourself. And in some sense, I've both simultaneously gained more respects for doctors and also lost a lot of the institutional prestige of the doctor title. I mean, in, in some perspective, a lot of doctors are very well-educated technicians that follow very simple algorithm, right? It's like, oh, LDL is elevated, hit, boom, hit a statin. Oh, uh, uh, glucose is kind of high. It's over 125 blood glucose after an f- overnight fast, boom, you got insulin or metformin, right? Like I, I, like, I don't have a medical degree, but like that's essentially the diagnostic and prescription pathway. Right. Yeah. And to me, it's like, man, like that is a very poor form of actually doing patient care. And so in, in that sense, I'm very disillusioned. And again, I don't think medical students and, and, and potentially students that are going to medical school right now that are listening. I don't think that's the that was not the initial dream of all of these people that spent years and years of training, years and years of hard education to do. And I think there is absolutely something with the uh, the incentive system where, yeah, you get 10 minutes of the patient and you got to churn through patients and you got to pay your medical school debt. And prescribing a metformin or an insulin or a statin gets you that code in the bill to get your, your dollars in your pocket to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, and I think it very much makes the medical industry a transactional revenue generating system. And it's a very, very far cry towards, I think, the type of medicine that we all should be aspiring to, which is that you actually have a conversational relationship with the patient. You actually think about their 
specific baseline, their scenario and their situations, take the extra time and a little bit of resources to do the advanced lipid panel. And if there are, a, if there needs to be a therapeutic or a drug to be prescribed, then absolutely like let's use all the, 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 the fruits of modern technology and medicine. But in, in some sense, the root cause is lifestyle. And yeah. it is like, it, yeah, it is, it is sad to me when I, like, when I hear that, like, yeah, from a cardiology perspective, a lot of times people are just like very, very overeducated algorithm matchers. I, am I oversimplifying it or am I overly mean on the industry? I mean, I wish I, I wish I could say yes, but I'm not so sure. And, and of course, we're generalizing and stereotyping and not every doctor is like this. But if you said, is the average doctor like that? I'm afraid you might be right. I mean, it, but part of it is, you know, from a primary care doctor, right? You need to know how to treat headaches and abdominal pain and menstrual bleeding and warts and lipids and diabetes and you know, uh, red eyes and, you know, you, you need to treat, you need to know so much that algorithms and guidelines are actually very helpful from that standpoint, because, you know, how much can you be an expert at everything that that is so challenging. I think primary care doctors have such a challenging job to be a good primary care doctor. So on the one hand, I can sort of see why that is, but for something as pervasive as type two diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity, that's where every doctor needs to be an expert and needs to be a specialist and needs to find a way to help their patients because this is the, the number one problem we have in our country and in the industrialized world, I think. So I, I do think people need to spend a little more time with that. But here's the other issue is I think a lot of doctors would say, yes, I recognize that there's more complexity to this and that lifestyle plays a big role. But in my experience, that doesn't work and the prescription works. And that's, I think, the biggest problem that a lot of doctors, a lot of clinicians have almost given up on lifestyle because they've tried it a thousand times and it doesn't work the majority of the time. But that's when we have to say, okay, maybe it's our message. It's not the patient's fault that it's not working. If it's happening that often, it's our message. You know, it's the classic thing. If you're in a classroom and two kids are getting failing grades and everybody else is doing fine, okay, I, that's pretty reasonable. But if you're in a classroom and 70% is getting a failing grade, maybe it's time to look at the teacher. You know, Maybe that's just not the person. Maybe it's time to look at the teacher. And I think that's the same thing. It's the message we're giving more than just the patient. And that's where I want a lot of physicians to understand there are other approaches and that a low-carb lifestyle is a very effective approach for a large number of patients that they've never even experienced. And, and to get them to have that experience, I think is so important because that's how we're gonna to start to spread this message. And I mean, you look at people like David Unwin, um, a general practitioner in the UK, who by his own message, by his own statement said, look, I was burnt out. I wasn't having any effect on my patients. I was ready to quit and retire. I was all set to do it. And then I was just lucky enough to encounter a low carb diet and saw the effect it could have on my patients. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to retire. I wanted to keep working. I was invigorated because now I saw the impact I could have on my patients. And that's what I want every doctor to experience. And that's how we have, why we have to get the word out. Yep, 100%. So there's a lot of approaches, schools of thought to actually implement this strategy of lower carbohydrate consumption, maybe higher fat consumption, intermittent fasting, exogenous ketones, right? There's a lot of ways that, you know, again, exercise is, is actually a lever to increase glycogen depletion and induce ketosis. 
So I, I think on one hand, I've been, you know, one of my more recent messages is that there's a lot of ways to slice this cake, Yeah. right? Like there's a lot of ways you can blend, choose one thing or another. Maybe let's walk through that idea maze together, right? I think what are some general broad levers that you like implementing with yourself, with your patients? And then two, let's unpack some of the like uh, like nuances within substreams. If we assume that low carbohydrate is the right approach, plant-based keto, carnivore keto, is animal fats really bad? You know, can you do it? Can we implement a plant-based keto, fish, etc.? Uh, let, let's explore this uh, can of worms. Yeah, so it's a big can of worms for sure. So the first question about how to work with patients to to implement this. You know, there are basically two approaches. One is you jump in the deep end and one is you kind of walk in the shallow end slowly. So that has a lot to do with personality. You know, where do you think, what type of personality does the patient have that is going to help them the most? And for some, that means you go full bore keto. You know, you, if you're at 300 grams of carbs, you immediately go down to 30 grams of carbs. You're going to likely be increasing your protein intake and start increasing your fat and making sure you're getting it from good sources and prepare them for the keto flu because they are going to get it. You know, if you do that quick of a transition from a standard American diet, you're going to get symptoms of keto flu. So make sure they're well hydrated, uh, like aggressively hydrated and supplementing with electrolytes. Sometimes exogenous ketones can help in that setting too, that, that transition period. Um, or, you know, like MCT oil and cream in your coffee and that sort of thing to really help that transition. And then after a week or two, they're going to feel fantastic. That's like the over, almost always the overwhelming response is after a week or two, they feel so much better. And getting people to that point is the key because once they experience how, how much better they feel and they start losing weight right away and they can think better and they're not as hungry as much and feeling a way that they've never felt in their life and didn't think was possible to feel. That's one of the things that's so powerful. And, and, and I don't think I'm overstating this. I mean, it really is that impressive as of initial response. So I, I like that approach for a lot of people, but some people are going to have a really hard time giving up all their carbohydrates at once. So for them, it's okay. First, cut out the Cokes and the sugar-sweetened beverages. And then after a little while, let's swap out desserts for, you know, some low-carb friendly desserts. And then let's, after that, let's get you off the grains and you sort of like slowly walk down. Actually, we have a guide at, at, at written a diet doctor called Six Steps Down the Carb Mountain. It's basically just that. You walk people down the carb mountain to eventually get to the point where they're low carb enough and maybe they're getting into ketosis and now they're starting to experience all the benefits. So so the best way to approach it really has to do with the patient's personality. But as a default, I prefer to jump in the deep end because that's where you get the biggest benefits the quickest um, and how when people are going to start to feel so much better. And then, you know, in terms of long-term maintenance and what version of a keto diet to do, again, there's so much personal preference. But you so you brought up a you know a vegan keto. It's possible, it's very challenging, but it's certainly possible. A vegetarian keto is a little bit easier because then at least you can have dairy and, and eggs to get some of your, your fat and protein sources. But you know, I don't know that there's a benefit to one or the other. That I think has more to do with personal preferences because the assumption that you should be vegetarian or vegan would be that there's something wrong with meat and something wrong with animal products. And that's where I think we're, we're misled. So there's the health aspect, there's the environment aspect, there's the ethical aspect there, you know, there are different aspects from a health aspect. I think we're way off base to say that meat is the problem. And actually the timing is good. Again, I just wrote a, an article at, at diet doctor about the study that came out, which was an evaluation of the pure study. 
So 170,000 people over multiple continents. That was an observational study that showed absolutely no relationship to red meat and risk of heart attacks, stroke, cancer, or dying early. And this is different than a lot of other observational studies based in the US or the UK that does show a very small difference. But those studies are, are poor quality evidence with a healthy user bias that you just can't get around. So the whole institution of meat is bad is based on studies that are just rampant with healthy user bias. Because in the 1990s and early 2000s, when the message was meat is bad, meat is bad, meat is bad, well, who's eating meat? The people who don't listen to that message, the people who don't you know, care about that message so much. And that's why in those studies, they also tend to smoke more and drink more alcohol and exercise less and be overweight and eat more calories and be less educated. I mean, the meat didn't cause them to do any of those things just as much as the meat didn't cause them to get heart disease or cancer or die early. And also just interject on that point, right? For that healthy user bias, it's also the folks that are eating meat in quote unquote standard Western context, they're, they're eating it with a can of soda or a beer and they're eating it with fries in a hamburger format. So are they measuring meat itself or are they measuring all the other stuff? And in an observational study, a correlational study, you can't tell, an associational study, you can't tell. So I think it's all a matter of interpretation at that point. Yeah, and you're, you're spot on there. So, so that's why I think, you know, when you ask, can you do a vegan keto or a vegetarian keto? The answer is yes, you, you can do it. But the next question is, why would you do it? And if, if you're doing it because the assumption is red meat is harmful, then, or animal products are harmful, then, then I think it's just sort of, it's just sort of misguided and, and not warranted. Yeah, no, let, let's unpack that a little bit more because again, one of like the general recommendations from, you know, stereotypical cardiologist is, hey, uh, cut down red meat consumption. It's bad for your heart. Eat lean cuts of meat. Saturated animal fat is bad for you. Go for polyunsaturated fish or plant oils. Uh, how do you unpack that uh, narrative? What was the reason for this argument, the steel man argument? And how do we, uh, how do you address it given your current perspective? Yeah. I mean, the main, the main reasoning for that argument is again, based on two things. One is the poor quality epidemiology studies that we already talked about that are not strong enough to back that type of recommendation, but two effect on LDL. Again, this myopic focus on just focusing on LDL and polyunsaturated fatty acids can lower LDL. But as we saw with the Sydney heart disease trial or the Minnesota coronary experiment, that in those trials, the people eating more polyunsaturated fatty acids lowered their LDL and either had no reduction in their risk of cardiovascular disease or an increase in their risk of cardiovascular disease. So you know, those are the endpoints we care about. And that's the perfect example of how the surrogate endpoint of LDL doesn't tell the whole story. Instead, you need, also need to know what's going on with them from an inflammatory and oxidation standpoint. What's going on with their HDL and triglycerides and their metabolic health? Uh, are they over-consuming food? So those, those two pillars, the nutritional epidemiology and then the focus on just LDL, don't hold up when you look at the long-term, longer-term clinical outcomes. And that's what's so challenging. Whereas instead, if you're eating a diet that is full of animal products, but you're not over-consuming calories, you're not gaining weight, it's not a mixed high-carb, high-fat diet, you're improving your metabolic health, 
where's the evidence that that is dangerous in any way, shape or form? And there is none. And so that's the thing. That's again, taking it to sort of the next step beyond the initial argument that you just sort of close your eyes to anything other than the guidelines. You have to take it to the next step and say, well, okay, what else is going on within the whole makeup of the diet? And what are the the specifics of the evidence against red meat that we need to know that doesn't apply to the majority of the people who are eating animal-based low-carb diets. So yeah, I think that's that's the main way to sort of unpack that. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, because it, it's, it's just funny because like when I'm talking to people just casually, you know, I just moved to Miami, you just everyone just, you know, talks about random stuff. And obviously, kids drink diet, something I'm very, very passionate about. And it's very fun to, to hear that, you know, I'm, I'm, v, I'm going plant-based, it's healthier, it's better. It's like, man, like, I feel like every other conversation, it's like, I don't even want to talk about diet anymore because I don't want to go through this like 25 minute lecture on metabolism and epidemiology and, 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 and associational studies. And it is so pervasive that this, this meme of animal protein, saturated fat is bad for you. It's going to like make you age prematurely where, uh, and it, and it, yeah, I think you put it quite nicely. It's pinned towards poor epidemiology, poor associational interpretation. And then this myopia of uh, LDL. So hopefully, it, like through you know Brett's argumentation here, we just have like I, don't know, I think you have like some good quick talking points to like just hit it real quick because I don't want I don't think you know life is more you know there's more to life than just like debating about plant based versus you know eating some red meat every now and then. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and people can eat plant based diets and vegan diets and vegetarian diets and diets full of whole grains, they can eat those and be healthy. Now, some people can, right? Uh, you look at the blue zones where people are living in the 90s and hundreds, and these are sort of grain-based, carb-based diets for the most part, but they are eating you know, 1,200 calories a day, basically two meals a day. They're outside getting physical activity all the time. You know, They're eating more locally produced foods. They're, it's a completely different society and structure than you know New York City or Miami or you know any industrialized city or country, it, completely different lifestyle. So you can't say one is going to equate to the other because what we find is people who are eating high carb based diets uh, frequently are overeating calories, and that's you know that's going to negate any potential benefit that could exist. But I would argue that there actually is no inherent benefit. There's nothing specifically healthy about whole grains. There's nothing specifically healthy even about fruit. No vitamins, no fiber or nutrients that you can't get from other foods. So you don't need these in your in your diet. I remember there was one paper talking about a, a ketogenic diet that said one of the biggest concerns is you're missing out on all the benefit beneficial phytonutrients, that you basically have a phytonutrient deficiency. Well, first of all, there's no evidence anywhere saying that we need phytonutrients or phytonutrients themselves are, are helpful or that fruit itself is helpful. It's only the context of the diet it's in. And that's where we sort of make these jumps that just don't make sense. So it's not that vegan diets are unhealthy or vegetarian diets are unhealthy. They can be. They can be as unhealthy and process-based as any other diet. They can also be healthy. And the same is true for meat-based diets as well. Yeah. I mean... I would make a, I'm curious to get your, your feedback on this. I would make a stronger statement in the sense that I think it is easier to eat an unhealthy vegan diet 
than it is to eat an unhealthy carnivore diet in the sense that it is quite hard to get the full micronutrient density in just pure vegan diets, right? There's just no vitamin Bs within plant products normally. And I think it's very, very hard to get enough protein, Yeah. right? Like you, you have to be gulping down pea and rice protein shakes, which doesn't seem very natural to me when you have to <laughs> purify pea and rice or whey or you know, whey is now now is dairy so maybe you can't even have whey but to have all this hyper processed stuff to make your quote-unquote natural whatever very very fancy expensive vegan diet work i think it's actually quite tricky to get that to work where it looks like to me at least from a a more meat-centric carnivore approach again you can do a really terrible job eating really low quality meat too and, and have hyper processed like sauce, I don't know, whatever, sausages all day long, hot dogs all day long. It's probably not great for you either. But I think uh, it's actually easier to, to mess up a vegan diet than it is to mess up a carnivore diet. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think you're right on base there. And, you know, the other thing is when you talk to people who are carnivore or, you know, animal based keto, they, they talk about how easy it is. You know, I eat twice a day. I hardly have to think about my meals. I mean, maybe I only eat once a day. I'm not hungry. I don't have to spend much time preparing my, my meals. Then you talk to someone who is vegan and you get a completely different story. Like you have to pay a lot of attention to your meals. It's a lot more labor intensive. It's not as logistically easy, um, which doesn't mean it can't be done. It's just a very different logistical setup. So for someone who convenience is important, I mean, then eating meat is so, so important because it's the most convenient and best source of protein for our bodies. You know, and you see professional athletes who are vegan and they're getting plenty of, of protein, but I can guarantee you they're working a lot harder and spending a lot more time and energy in their day to make sure they're getting the right amount of protein than someone who's eating meat. Yeah. And, and, and I would add on top, I mean, is there, you know, have you looked at the protein quality where in terms of protein completeness obviously you know animal tissue is much similar in terms of amino acid profile than a plant i mean just you just look at it like the plant tissue looks very different from a human muscle versus an animal muscle to the human muscle even from a a protein quality perspective is that an area that you've looked into in terms of just like the amount of plant protein that you would have to consume to even match uh, per gram animal protein yeah definitely and and we've got some content on this at, at diet doctor as well but basically there's no question that animal protein has a better bioabsorption so you're going to absorb the protein better than plant protein animal protein are complete proteins which means they have all nine of the essential amino acids whereas almost all plant sources of protein are missing one or more of those amino acids, except for soy. Soy is the only one that really has all of them. So if you're trying to equate gram per gram, you're going to need to eat anywhere from 20 to 50% more protein grams in plants to get the same amount of protein sort of ingested and used and, and um, metabolized as you would from an animal source. Soy being the only different one that is, looks like it's more equivalent to animals, but all the other plant sources, you need to combine them and you need to eat more than you would if you were eating meat. And then of course you have to ask, well, what comes along with those grams of proteins and it's carbs. The plant-based sources of proteins are much higher in carbs, which if you're vegan, 
and you're not low carb is fine. But if you're trying to stay low carb, that makes it more challenging because you're, you're, you have to eat a lot more calories, a lot more carb calories to get the same amount of protein that you would just by eating some steak or some fish or some egg whites or chicken or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one point that I think is just very salient to me is I, I feel like a lot of the folks in the plant-based kind of exponents will, will use an argument from natural, uh, like a natural fallacy argument where like, Hey, you know, this seems a little bit more natural, but have you looked at a pea protein powder or a rice protein powder? I mean, that's like, pretty damn hyper processed stuff to look stuff to me. Yeah. So I think it's like, it's very interesting when it's like, there's like this weird convergence of this is more natural, but then you have to do like all these like hoops to like even make it even possible to even again, like to get enough protein to even make it like, I think just sensible for uh, someone who is looking to have some sort of performance in, 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 in their exercise. Right. Cause I think any serious athlete, uh, is very, very thoughtful about their protein intake. As you mentioned, I think quite astutely, like, like quite eloquently, it's just like very, very dialed in. You got to spend a lot more work to get enough protein if you're, you know, mixing rice and soy and, and, and pea protein powders together all day long. Yeah. And, and look, I want to, I take the approach that I want to support anybody in their choices to be as healthy as they can be. So, you know, I, I see lots of patients who are vegan and we have, you know, guides on at diet doctor to help people be vegan or vegetarian, low carb and recipes. So uh, it can be done and I want to support it, but I'm always, you know, uh, I always want to be clear that it is logistically more difficult and is going to require some more processed components than, than eating meat. And if that's okay for them, you know, so be it, but I just want to make sure they're aware. And of course the supplementation, like you talked about the B vitamins, you have to supplement with B12. I mean, it is it is a nutritionally incomplete diet. Again, doesn't mean you can't do it. You just have to supplement appropriately and, and be aware of it. So I don't want people just to start a vegan diet without the knowledge that they need to take certain supplements for sure B12 and then maybe even, you know, D and iron and calcium and even more, you know, so there's there's quite a number of things they need to consider. 100%. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think for a lot of people's personal journeys and personal choices, right, there's a moral ethical point, which I think is likely, I think the most compelling point of not slaughtering other mammals for food. I think that's a pretty powerful argumentation point and then potentially an environmental point. But I think talking about the health of the individual point, I think very much no evidence of superiority. And I think as we discussed, likely increased challenges of in, in, in terms of maintaining homeostasis with the plant-based versus a carnivore or a mixed diet. And I think, obviously, I think, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole of talking about the moral arguments of consumption of other living mammals or not. Do you have a strong point of view on that front? Yeah, I mean, I do. My first point of view is don't get into an ethical argument with anybody because ethics are so, you know, personal and strongly held that, you know, don't, I don't try and convince people um, their ethics are wrong or that my ethics are better or anything like that. But but there, I mean, there's component, there is no life without death. There is no food without death. I mean, to, to think that the wheat that was harvested and the, the vegetables that were grown didn't involve the death of field mice or birds or, you know, slugs, or, you know, you can take it to the smallest and even to, to bigger animals that there is death involved. Now, it, it's not, you could say it wasn't purposeful. Okay, so that's an argument that it wasn't purposeful death. But it happens time and time again. It's, it's guaranteed to happen when you spray fertilizer and when you harvest a field and when you run your tractors. I mean, that's, 
it happens. So you can't ignore that. But okay, well, you know, larger mammals and animals that look like us and, you know, have big eyes that 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 impacts us more than the slugs and the birds and the rodents that we don't see. So, you know, you have to draw a line where your own ethics are. But I think it's important to realize that 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 broccoli isn't death free, you know, something died for that broccoli to get on your plate. So you, you do have to draw a line in the sand somewhat from the ethical point of view. So that I guess that's my point for that. And also, you know, what are you giving up for those ethics? And again, that goes down to if you can say, well, it meets harmful anyway. So that makes me even stronger in my ethical view. But again, you got to get rid of that assumption that meat is harmful. So if meat, instead, if you said meat is beneficial, which it is, especially in countries where it's harder to get enough plant sources of protein, that meat can be such a, a cheap and, and readily available source of protein. So for them, they don't have the luxury to go meat free and still have a nutritionally sufficient diet that, you know, that would maybe loosen your ethics a little bit. So it, it's, you know, I think that the, the arguments are all sort of still a little bit related. And same with the environment, you know, environment's a whole nother argument. And for that, I, I highly recommend people look, you know, um, look into Diana Rogers or Frank Mintlerner or some of these big voices, um, really showing the, the truth beyond sort of the simplistic argument that cows burp out methane, therefore they're bad. But they, they play such a crucial role in in carbon sequestration and in soil health, it's more the mismanagement of the animals more than it is the animals themselves that are the problem. So that's a whole nother other argument as well. Yep, 100%. Yeah, and I think we've had Rob Wolf and other folks who've been looking at that space in terms of, yeah, exactly, kind of doing the, like parsing out the math and a little bit that's not so uh, contrite in terms of like arguing for one particular point of view, right? Especially pasture raising animals where, yeah, you are carbon negative, basically, you know, lowering the CO2 con uh, content in, in the atmosphere into the ground, right? So I think there is... A much more, I think, depth and nuance. So a lot of, I would say, more like first level arguments that are, are commonly thrown around in terms of this uh, this plant versus meat kind of argument. Pivoting off of this, I mean, a lot of the things that our community is very interested in include intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, high-intensity interval training. Is this something that you work with your clients on or something that just like is generally general like lifestyle principles that you help educate people on because again if you if you understand the mechanisms and and, and the frameworks here carbohydrate restriction or just a, a restriction along a dimension of a macronutrient choice has a very similar analogous effect as time restriction on a dimension or potentially increasing energy expenditure that then therefore burns through and turns over your stored glycogen, which then induces some, basically a fasting mimetic state, right? And that's why I think fasting sometimes causes, called an exercise mimetic and exercise is called a fasting mimetic. And then sometimes people say ketones are fasting mimetic. And again, it's, it's because all of these things are super interrelated, how they impact AMPK, mTOR, ketogenesis. So as we evolve the aperture open to hit kind of exercise, fasting, how important are those in your toolkit, whether it's for yourself or, or for your patients? Yeah, very important. And, and I'm glad you mentioned them. And, and I like how you said in your toolkit, because that's exactly what they are. They're tools in your toolkit. Doesn't mean it's one size fits all for everybody that everybody should be doing, you know, five day fast once a quarter, or everybody should be eating uh, 18 six or you know, everybody should be doing high intensity interval training. I don't think it's quite to that point. Because I mean, let's be honest, if you uh, need to lose 150 pounds and have a hard time getting off the couch, 
then talking about high intensity interval training is not the place to start, right? That's where you need to start with more your nutrition, your, your general lifestyle, and then you can eventually work into more exercise. But for, you know, for the average person who is well on their way to health and losing weight and feeling good, then absolutely resistance training and some form of interval training, I think is really important for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. It can affect mTOR, it can affect autophagy, you know, all these sort of like buzzwords that are likely connected to longevity and more importantly, health span and metabolic health, right? Because uh, the more muscle you have, the more it's going to use glucose, the more insulin sensitive you're going to be, uh, the more metabolically active, your basal metabolic rate, the higher that's going to be. All these beneficial effects plus avoiding the age-related decline in muscle and sarcopenia and frailty that happens. So it's a multi-legged stool of how beneficial exercise is. So I, I absolutely am a huge fan of exercise. And I like, I like to encourage some zone two cardio and then a heavy amount of resistance training and some interval training. I, I think doing all three of these is, is the ultimate goal, but you got to start with the ones that the, the people are going to be um, we're likely to stick with. And resistance training may just be a little bit of bands and body weight exercises in the beginning. And the interval training is basically going to fatigue, you know, maybe that type of a structure, not, um, you know, going on a rower as hard as you can for a minute or running sprints. That's great if you can do it. But a lot of my patients and, you know, a lot of people we work with aren't quite to that point yet. So you got to ease them into that because the last thing you want is someone to get injured and say, forget it, I give up on exercise because I got injured. So I think doing it intelligently is in, in a progressive fashion is the way to go. Similar with fasting, you know, I think everybody should be doing a form of time restricted eating of like 12 hours, which shouldn't be a hard ask. You know, if you, if you listen to Jason Fung and, and what he talks about with fasting, it used to be that you had three meals and then all of a sudden it was okay, adding snacks in. And then, you know, for a 30 minute soccer game, you needed your orange juice and your, your crackers, or your cookies, because, you know, we just, evolved into this this constantly grazing snacking society and got away from the society of the three meals a day with no snacks. So we really need to get back to that because it's definitely healthier. The science suggests it and backs it up. So at a minimum, you shut down dinner and you don't eat again until breakfast. So that's sort of like the minimum. And then as you progress from there, whether it's a 16-8 or an 18-6, as long as you do it, you use the tool correctly. And I, and I like to point to the, the fasting study done by Ethan Weiss from UC San Francisco. And he did a study on time-restricted eating, um, which was like a 16-8 type of pattern that showed no benefit to weight loss or metabolic health. And the initial reaction from a lot of people was, see, fasting doesn't work, which is not a correct interpretation. But what's interesting is when you look at that study, the people who were doing the 16-8 actually ate more calories during the day than the people who were eating three meals a day, which kind of doesn't make sense, right? If you're skipping a meal, how do you end up eating more calories? But this is what happens to some people is they say they either feel so hungry that they start sort of binge eating or they psychologically feel they have to make up for the calories. And that kind of counteracts some of the benefits from fasting. So I think when done correctly, when it is a true way to reduce calories and a true way to give you long periods of time without food coming in and your insulin coming down and maybe tapping into autophagy and then just eating normally for those remaining meals, then fasting and time-restricted eating, I think is a very powerful tool. And it helps with weight loss and metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, blood pressure, even lipids. I mean, it can help with so many different surrogate markers that it makes sense that it will have some impact on our overall health span and lifespan. And then 
the step further is, you know, the concept from Walter Longo and, and some of his studies that these three to five day fasts will contribute to longevity. We don't have great human data, you know, longevity data in humans is tough, but some mouse data suggests that could be the case. So should people be doing longer fasts once a quarter? Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you can do it safely, you know, not tap into some eating disorder pathology or have the feeling like you need to binge and, and make up for the lost calories. If you can do it and understand the purpose and do it safely, then yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, nicely broken down. I actually did a deep dive on Ethan's study. And I think there's a couple interesting things. If you look at the comparator, it was a very broad eating window where you could be doing up to a 14-hour fast and still be considered a comparator. So there's a very, very tight difference between a 16-8 versus control. And I think one thing that was also very interesting was that the activity on the fasting group was way lower than the activity on the control group as tracked by the aura ring. Mm. And it was like unclear why that happened, right? Maybe, you know, the people that were on this more quote unquote fasting were just like more weirded out and they just didn't move as much versus the control group. So again, I think very hard to tease out and make broad claims. I think my problem, I don't think Ethan was overstating in, in the paper itself. I think a lot of the PR headlines was like, oh, fasting doesn't work. And it's like, no, like read the friggin' paper, look at the methods, look at the analysis. And, you know, what are the endpoints of fasting even working? I think a very important endpoint of a proper fast is getting to some mild level of nutritional ketosis to even, you know, see if that was a large enough quote unquote dose of fasting. Again, hopefully conversations like these help unpack some of the actual methodology behind some of this research. So it's not just like, oh, read this PR headline that right. says, oh, eggs are great for you. Oh, eggs are bad for you. Coffee <laughs> is great for you. Coffee is bad for you. And you're just confused. And it's like, you got to understand the methodology and, and what the exact scientific endpoints are being measured. Yeah. And look, I'm a big fan of Ethan Weiss. I, I think he's a great guy and a super smart guy. And we don't agree on everything, but I really, really respect him. And and I think I think you are absolutely right. He he did not necessarily overstate the findings of the study, but he got a lot of flack for it because of the media headlines. People read the media headlines and then lash out at him, saying, "How can you say this?" And he was like, "Wait a second, I didn't say that. I just did the study. You know, it was a randomized study. We tested one thing. We tested one protocol. Like that doesn't mean all of fasting doesn't work. You know, but but it's funny. It was a good lesson for me. You know, in talking to him about it, how if you put your name on a paper, you open yourself up to the slings and arrows of what the media reports about your paper, even if you didn't say it. So it's an interesting role for an investigator to be in, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, are you doing any, are you involved in any studies or running any studies investigating or are you more focused on diet doctor and your clinical practice? Yeah, right now my clinical practice and diet doctor take up all my time. So I'm not as involved in research studies as I would like to be, but it's so important that people are doing research studies and not pharma sponsored research studies, you know, not drug sponsored research studies, but lifestyle research studies and which are harder to get funding for and harder to do bigger studies. But my hat's off to anybody who's doing studies like that, or even any businesses that are helping sponsor studies to do that. So my understanding is you're involved in some studies, which I think is great. And I, we definitely need more of that. We need to get it away from 
the big pharma companies and get it into the hands of people who really want to answer important questions and not just prove that their drug is beneficial so they can make billions of dollars on their drugs. Yeah. And I think where I've gotten into is that I think I'm just, you know, I, I grew up a science fair comp competitor, right? Like I think a, very, a different alternate version of myself would have gotten my PhD in computer science at Princeton, right? So it was just like very interesting how uh, the, you know, the world and life paths take you. So I think it's always had a bent toward just understanding truth. And in some ways, because I don't care about academic papers, I don't care about tenureship. I make great money doing, you know, running my businesses. I straight up don't care like about any dog dogma of nutrition. I just want to work on things that actually match human physiology so I can inform my own like lifestyle and practices and hopefully share those learnings to other people. So in some sense, it's like, yeah, I have commercial interests, but like, I literally don't care if like the ketogenic diet, like I found data that like said it was going to kill me. I would just literally friggin' do something else. And in that sense, like, I feel like I have more academic freedom yeah. than a professor because like, in some sense, professors are much more tied to their academic profile and all of their papers and all of their corpus of literature, where it's like, I'm not even, I'm not quote unquote, even a real scientist, but very much happy to at least contribute where I can in terms of offering in, like areas of scholarship where we do have some insight working with elite athletes on the like, on kind of the elite human performance side. But it, it is also just very interesting when you unpack kind of the weird incentives in the medical system there's equally weird incentives in the academic system as well uh, and i'm sure you've probably seen kind of again talking about kind of uh, where con where funding is where incentives for tenureship come from where people's reputations are how media even treats it everything's political <laughs> that 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 is what i've I can learn in my in my short career to date yeah, I think that's very well said and well summarized and you hit all the main points there. And and that's why I love to see, you know, people like you doing research where you say, look, my my reputation, my future isn't tied to the result of the study. I just want to find the answer. And someone like Dave Feldman, right, who's a who's a computer science guy, an engineer, not a clinician, not a researcher, but he's helping kind of grassroots support this study on lean mass hyperresponders with high LDL to a keto diet, you know, he's helping make that science happen, which I think is so important. Um, and that's what we need. It's exactly what we need more of more studies like that, trying to answer specific questions, not trying to pad someone's reputation. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Dave Feldman is super sharp, right? Like, in terms of just actual knowledge, the guys up there with as the most tenured professors that I've spoken to, like, I mean, and again, it's like, it, it is this interesting world where I think with the decentralization of information where, you know, even the listener can read every single paper that you just, you know, you and I are talking about here and, you know, have a different or just smart interpretation than me, right? Like it, it is like this world where, yes, there are people with better training, better experience and in, in, in actual, you know, quote unquote professional training. And we should use that to jump their own knowledge. But I think it's, it becomes very close to fallacy from authority or argument from authority, which is a logical fallacy in terms of, you know, every single eminent professional through every previous generation has had something wrong. So I think it, it would be very silly, if not very arrogant to just consider that today's we are at the perfect knowledge of human physiology today. Right. Like that, every generation of, 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 of eminent people have probably thought that. And they're always wrong. So I think 
there needs to be a humbleness in terms of keeping the scientific spirit open. I, I think science to me is observing and, and, and running through the scientific me- method experiments to invalidate your prejudice or hypotheses, right? It's very much uh, empirical falsifying uh, uh, endeavor versus I need to make evidence to support my truth. Yeah. Right. Like that. And I think, I feel like when people get too much tenure and too much reputation, they become, let me support my truth model of, 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 of investigation versus how do I falsify myself? Yeah. I love that you brought up your experience with like the science fairs growing up because that, that, that's the quintessential scientist, right? Like you weren't trying to prove something. You weren't trying to defend something you believed in. You were exploring. Like I remember my science fair project, I, I irradiated E. coli. So I plated these, these E. coli and then I irradiated them at different doses to see when they would grow and stop growing. I, I, I wasn't invested in the outcome. I was learning the scientific process. I was trying to make sure I hit all the scientific steps correctly. And I was scientifically curious about what would happen. I mean, that's like, that's, that's just as pure as science gets. And now compare that to what's going on at most universities and drug sponsored trials. And there's, you know, it's, it, you get so far away from that pure science, but I love that you brought that up. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that in a while, but that just makes a lot of sense that that's the scientific integrity and the scientific questioning we need to get back to our, our eighth grade science fair projects again. Yeah, no, that's pretty advanced eighth grade science fair project. If you're irradiating E. coli, that's, <laughs> that's really cool. So, uh, you know, knock on wood, it feels like, you know, we're at the tail end of the pandemic. You know, a lot of vaccines are rolling out. I'm actually double vaccinated. So I feel super awesome. I know you're healthcare professionals. You're probably you know, on the way, if not already vaccinated as well. Yep. What's what's the plan? I mean, 2021, again, I, I don't want to be too quip or, you know, too prematurely celebrating, but like all the data I've seen and, you know, I think, you know, vaccine rollout, you know, relatively smooth. Uh, are you still, are you starting to make some plans in terms of, you know, big, big projects for 2021? Or are you still taking it kind of conservative? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, personally, and I'm just talking about me personally, COVID's over. I mean, I've, I've got my vaccines, you know, my wife's got my vaccine, got her vaccines, my kids are young and healthy, my parents, my in-laws, you know, my, my circle is either at, zero, at very low risk or vaccinated. So for me personally, COVID's over. Now I can see why everybody doesn't hold that same opinion, but, you know, I would get on, I haven't been on a plane, you know, in over a year, I'd get on a plane tomorrow, you know, I'd, I'd go to a concert tomorrow, like I would do these things because because for me, uh, it's no longer a concern. Now, the rest of the country and the rest of the world is going to take a little bit longer to get there. And that's okay. I don't talk much about COVID. But my big concern is that, you know, if we if we focus too much on cases, and if, if no one's ending up in the hospital, and nobody's dying, and no one's in the ICU, then are we really that concerned about cases? Because then it's just the flu, and we don't shut down the economy for the flu. So that's if we get to that point. And I think we're getting to that point clearly with the number of vaccinations coming out. So I'm hoping the whole country is going to start moving that direction. But, you know, the real thing with COVID that I hope we can walk away from is that this was a disease that affected elderly and affected metabolically unhealthy people. And I think that's what we really need to focus on. We, we talk so much about metabolic health in terms of, you know, heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease. But now we've also learned infectious disease also and pandemics. Like what would this pandemic have looked like if 
we didn't have our obesity and diabetes and metabolic health epidemic. If we were a hunter gatherer tribe or something, you know, like what would this pandemic have looked like? It would have looked a lot different. So I, I hope the silver lining that we can take away from this is to really focus on metabolic health, however we get there, but to focus on metabolic health and to elevate that as our number one concern because we've seen what it can do to a population when you're not metabolically healthy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up this point. I had a, a, a monologue or a, a free fatty Friday, what we call our monologues, basically saying that like no one's talking about exactly what you said. Like we're talking about, you know, vaccine rollouts and social distancing protocols. And, and that's all great, right? Like we should do all of that stuff. But if we literally like metabolic health is, is clearly a, the, if if not like the primary resilience factor, uh, a leading contributor to resilience towards this, these types of infectious diseases. And I think you just look at like third world countries, which clearly have much less sanitation, education, availability of resources, and our death rates are lower. And I think, I think it's, you can literally see a line between population of obesity to like death rates. And I think it's like, again, observational, associational, it's hard, like, uh, you know, we shouldn't make like super strong causational statements, but just from a like a hazard ratio, it's just like, okay, that, that's a, that's pretty interesting when, when you just see like societies with much less incidence of obesity just fared better. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great assessment. And no one's talking about it. Like no politicians talking about it. No public health policy person's talking about it. No, I, I think some news people talk about it a little bit, but they're like definitely the more trolly polarizing news figures because it's going to like, you know, piss off, you know, half the, half, half the, you know, the, the, the world or the half the country if you say stuff like this. But it, it again, it's like, it just uh, like si observation. It's just, it's just the, it's just the truth. Like, yeah, you, you, people will, you, you will have much more likelihood of dying if you are fat or have diabetes. Like, sorry, like, I, I wish it wasn't the case either, but it's just true. Yeah, and, and you brought up the word polarizing, and I think that's part of the problem. Like, it, it can be so polarizing. It's like, it's like either you're in the metabolic health camp or you're in the vaccine camp, and you have to pick your side. And, it, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. It's not so polarizing. You know, the vaccines are going to get us there much quicker, right? We've got to open up the economy, and the vaccines are the fastest way to get there. Yeah, that's kind of true. I think it's a good point, Brett. I think it's actually a good point. I feel like a lot of the keto carnivore people are seem pretty anti-vax and it's like i don't think we need to like pull to the anti-vax world guys like i i don't know if you're seeing the kind of the same social media posts i'm seeing it's like they, they seem pretty like skeptical about a vaccine it's like cool yeah i think metabolic health is pretty important like we should talk about it but like we, yeah I, but I agree with you like i'm i have the vaccine and i want to be metabolically healthy yeah. like let's use all the tools right like it is kind of funny that it, it is like somewhat polarized yeah yeah and i mean I think one of the interesting things about sort of the low carb and keto community is we, we are skeptical, right? That's how we got to this place in the first place, because we're going against the guidelines and traditional teaching. So we're, you know, contrarians, we're, you know, you could say we're deeper thinkers and we're, you know, controversial thinkers because we're willing to think outside the box. So the same applies to vaccines too, I guess, that, that people want to think about it, don't maybe don't trust the advice that they're getting. And, and so that's why people are sort of contrarians. But I think it's, I agree with you. You can be in both camps. I'm in the vaccine camp and I'm in the metabolic camp, metabolic health camp. And I see them both as so important to getting back to life. 100%. Well, this is like 
a fun conversation. I'm glad we just covered like a broad swath of topics here. But yeah, no, I, I do want to ask, like, you know, what projects do you have up and coming? I mean, what or anything new and any 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 announcements? You know, what what's what's on top of mind as we go into uh, spring here? Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, at Diet Doctor, we're just continuing to create more and more content. We're we're starting to focus a little bit more on higher protein and really focusing on the role of protein and how protein works within a keto diet. And even if you're not on a keto diet, the importance of protein for metabolic health and weight loss. So we're we're starting to develop some more content around that, which I think is going to help a lot of people because, look, I mean, keto diet helps so many people. But then some people stall, you know, and some people get frustrated with the stall or some people maybe can't quite uh, make a keto diet work. So we want to make sure we're we're providing as many options as we can to help people with healthy weight loss. So we're starting to focus on that type of content a little bit more, which has been really enjoyable to go through and kind of open my eyes to a lot of the, the, the science and the literature that's out there. So that's some exciting stuff going on for us at Diet Doctor. And we're, we're working on different courses too. Like we have our, our CME course and now we have a a course on coaching intermittent fasting, and we're going to, we're developing a course on coaching, low carb eating. So uh, we, we just got a lot of fun stuff going on, really designed to helping people succeed. So whether you're a physician or a nutritionist or a personal trainer or a health coach, or whether you're just an individual looking to improve yourself, we want to help all those people have success with healthy weight loss, with me improving metabolic health, and with finding a sustainable and enjoyable way to live your life. So it's not just improving your health for next week or next month, but for your lifetime. So yeah, I'm really enjoying working with the crew at Diet Doctor and just trying to create the best content we can. Amazing. Yeah, keep up the good fight. I think the team and, and you do amazing content there. Just, you know, good, good, just like good, uh, like trustworthy resources. So we need more of that in this world when there's so much misinformation and just like low quality work. So keep up the good fight. You know, looking forward to a time where we can hang out in person. Thank you for taking the time. Great to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on.